When Donald Trump walks into a Miami courthouse later today, it's very possible you're going to be thinking to yourself, I've seen this show before, right? After all, it was just a couple of months ago that Trump did this very same dance in Manhattan. Back then, he was being charged by the local DA over hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Now, he's being charged by the feds, who are alleging Trump crammed classified documents into a bathroom and a ballroom at Mar-a-Lago, rather than turning them back in like he was supposed to. But former federal prosecutor Ankush Kardori says the first thing you need to keep in mind about today's court appearance is that this federal case in Florida is in a whole different league. Well, look, the one in New York, it's an unusual case. This was an unusual a prosecution that uses the statutes in an unusual way. That does not mean that the case is invalid by any means, but um, it's an unusual case. This federal indictment is, I think, much more easy for people to grasp, right? They can understand the underlying conduct. They can understand why it would be criminal, right? Because of the seriousness of the uh, material that's allegedly at issue in the documents that Trump received. And they can understand why, you know, when you receive a grand jury subpoena, you should be honest and respond to it and not screw around and have your lawyers effectively lie to the government on your behalf, at least as it's alleged in the indictment. Yeah, I've heard this called a speaking indictment. Right. So so a speaking indictment is uh, an indictment that is uh, more detailed and lengthier than it needs to be uh, in order to, among other things, educate the public about the conduct at issue. Right. So this indictment, which is 44 pages, probably could have been four or five pages if the prosecutors really wanted to. Right. This one is longer on purpose. Right. It's longer on purpose because prosecutors clearly want to convey the gravity of, uh, of the conduct to the public and their view of the underlying conduct to the public. And, you know, Jack Smith, I think it was no accident that when he appeared um, last Friday, he explicitly suggested that Americans read it for themselves. Good afternoon. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump. Yeah, he'd like written a story for them. Correct. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. But if the story this prosecutor, Jack Smith, is telling you sounds convincing, Ankush has a word of warning for you. This is the start of the process, not the end. If Trump was a regular person, Joe Schmo, and this indictment came out for that person, what would you give the odds of that person facing jail time? Pretty high. Pretty high. Since he's not a regular person, does that mean all bets are off? You know, I don't think all bets are off, but it is going to substantially complicate things, like, at every step of the way here, I think. Today on the show, everything you need to know ahead of today's hearing, from why Trump's own lawyers seem to be abandoning him, to how a judge he appointed could oversee his prosecution. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, before we get into the details of the court hearing, let's talk about the indictment itself, which I think is a kind of interesting document. It's nearly 50 pages long, and it really tells this story, as we've said. Can you lay out what the story it tells is? Well, in simplest terms, right, the story is that Trump took hundreds of documents, classified documents, that he was not entitled to take with him upon leaving the White House. He then kept them in a very, very sloppy, haphazard manner. Boxes, boxes strewn across um, the Mar-a-Lago property, uh, in a bathroom at one point, according to the indictment. In a shower. Right, right. And then when he was called upon uh, by a grand jury subpoena after months of wrangling to return everything, he obstructed that effort, right? He moved boxes around. He worked with this guy, Walt Nada, to mislead prosecutors. Walt Nada was like his body man, or is his body man, I should say. Yes, yes. Um, worked with uh, that individual to move boxes around, to evade uh, the subpoena as alleged in the indictment um, and didn't ultimately return everything and used his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, at the time, as alleged in the indictment, as an instrument to mislead prosecutors. Interesting, too, there are these recordings that are referenced in the indictment itself, including one where Trump is showing off documents uh, to a reporter, which is important because it establishes that Trump knew the document was classified, that he could have declassified it, that he didn't declassify it, and that he still had it. And then he was showing it to someone, which seems like it's just a heck of a piece of evidence. It really is. It really is. Now, of course, even there, just there is a little bit of wrinkle in that prosecutors have apparently not tracked down that document. And it is at least conceivable that Trump was bluffing. But even if he was, the rest of the commentary about I could have classified it, but I didn't, and now it's secret, like that would, that's still damning, even if the document never existed. That, that is a, a form of evidence that's very potent because it's the defendant's own words, right? And that's going to be virtually impossible for him to run away from. I'm sure they'll come up with something. But jurors really latch on to that stuff. And Trump's attorneys have been making the case like, well, if you look at the photos of these boxes, you know, one of them is spilled out on the floor, which speaks to how it was stored. But they're saying like, well, if you look at it, you know, you see it's it's magazine clippings, it's it's his papers, and it wasn't as bad as it appears is basically uh, the case they're making. Does the indictment have a counter argument to that? Yes, yes. I mean, that's one of many very bad tendentious arguments that Republicans are trotting out here. The response to that is that that's not what the indictment is about. The indictment is about 31 documents that are laid out uh, with descriptions of each one that were marked at the secret or top secret level, with one exception that was unmarked, that concerned the military capabilities of the United States, foreign governments, foreign allies, potentially foreign adversaries. Those aren't newspaper clippings. They may have been mixed in with newspaper clippings. That's what I was going to say. The fact that they may have been mixed in with newspaper clippings is a reflection of the sloppiness with which these materials were kept. It is not exculpatory. Writing in Slate, a number of attorneys have pointed out that if you read this indictment, one of the things that becomes clear is that one of Trump's own lawyers, this guy Evan Corcoran, will really be a star witness in this case, which I imagine is awkward 
Can you just explain how that came to be? Because I think most people have the idea that things you tell to a lawyer go in a lockbox. They cannot be presented (laughs) at a case like this. Yeah, that's typically the case, um, except where the communications may have been themselves uh, in furtherance of a crime or a fraud. So what happened here is that uh, Evan Corcoran was representing Trump in connection with all this. Uh, The government obtained uh, things from Evan Corcoran that would otherwise be privileged and then went to a judge and made an application under what's called the crime fraud exception to make that material available to prosecutors on the theory that because it was material that reflects evidence in furtherance of a crime or fraud, it is no longer subject to the attorney-client privilege. That's a fairly unusual investigative step, um, but not at all unprecedented. So uh, it is going to create a fairly awkward situation for Mr. Corcoran. But there is a kind of a funny little element to the Corcoran stuff that I think has gotten somewhat overlooked, which is that uh, I don't think I've ever seen someone take as detailed notes, including voice memos, and in such contemporaneous fashion as Corcoran did with respect to Trump. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering about that because Trump himself is notoriously kind of allergic to preserving information in a written way. (laughs) And so I was surprised to learn that his lawyer had these notes. We should lay out what the notes said, which is basically notes of what Trump told him, which was, hey, could we just tell the government we don't have these documents? Do we really have to turn them over? That sort of stuff that speaks to a knowledge that you shouldn't have things that the government is asking for. That's right. I mean, it's all evidence, uh, as again is alleged by prosecutors, that Corcoran was sort of unwittingly used as an instrument to mislead the government. So uh, it, it's an unusual situation. Uh, I think Corcoran may have wisely thought that, you know, many Trump lawyers have ended up in legal jeopardy before. And he may have thought, like, you know, I don't want to find myself in that situation. A push comes to shove. I want a very detailed contemporaneous account of what actually happened here. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this back and forth with Evan Corcoran, this attorney, it speaks to this bigger issue of general chaos on Trump's legal team, doesn't it? Like after the indictment came out, it was this really interesting moment where Trump's attorneys had a number of reactions, like one lawyer who'd already resigned from the team went on a kind of speaking tour. He showed up, you know, talking to a bunch of people. And then two other lawyers resigned from the team completely within 24 hours So it just seems very chaotic over there. Yeah, you know, I wrote a piece about uh, uh, Trump's legal team and the chaos uh, for New York Magazine that came out actually Thursday morning uh, before we knew about the indictments. Interesting timing. Yeah, very, very well timed. And uh, yes, there has been a real problem with sort of lack of coordination among the team, lack of sort of the best talent, if you will, on some of these investigations. And I was really not surprised to see the shuffling around. I'm very dubious that the two people on Thursday night who left the team actually resigned. My strong suspicion is it was one of those things where it was like, oh, you can't fire me and I quit kind of thing. Um, because they, they frankly did not do a good job uh, representing him. And it is very much in Trump's interest to have a new lawyer come in who might actually have some credibility with the courts and prosecutors and be able to steer this in a much more professional way than was being done. Why didn't it surprise you? Like, I, I feel like, what, what is what did you learn when you were reporting that made you think, oh, yeah, this reaction, this follows? Um, okay. 
so, so this is a, a slightly a little uncomfortable, but here, but here we go. I, I know Jim Trustee. I, I wrote about this in the piece. Jim Trustee is one of the guys who resigned. Correct. Jim Trustee is one of the guys who resigned, and he was kind of the lead on defending Trump in this investigation. Um, he was a prosecutor himself, turned defense lawyer, and I dealt with him when I was a prosecutor. And he was representing defendants in investigations I was dealing with. And, you know, I heard pitches along the lines he made, you know, last week to the Justice Department in my investigations. And he's a very nice, plain spoken person and, and effective in that regard. When you say pitches to the Justice Department, you're talking about the fact that before the indictment came out, he had what's typical, which is a meeting with the government lawyers to be like, hey, guys, is there a way we can sort this out before we do this whole like trial thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a more direct than that. It's it's a pitch to say, like, we think you're about to indict our client. Here's why you shouldn't do it. Right. And uh, those are common in complex white collar cases. And just having known uh, Jim Trustee from that, um, I could tell it was not going to be persuasive to the the Justice Department. What you're saying is that the lawyers who left weren't the best lawyers. But I sort of wonder... Is the problem with not creating a cohesive narrative a problem with the lawyers or a problem with the client? Oh, it's Trump's fault. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> Trump's fault. Yes. And that's another point that I, that I put in the piece, which is like, it's it's all well and good to like look at this situation and say, oh, the lawyers are kind of all over the place. It's kind of chaotic, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, there is only one person who can who can control all this, and it is the client, right? All of these people serve Trump, and all of these people take their directions from Trump. And uh, he could fix this if he had better standing in the public and had a better uh, ability to retain, you know, kind of high profile prominent law firms, which he kind of doesn't. Uh, He may be able to find someone, but he's struggling currently to find a law firm to represent him. Hmm. You raise this issue, which I think is important, which is that big law firms don't seem eager to take on Trump's case. And I think that's interesting because... Trump has money. Why wouldn't really good, solid members of the legal community defend him? So a couple of reasons. First, uh, at least until now, I was told that Trump has actually been reluctant to fork over the kind of money he would need to to retain some of those firms. He's cheap. He's cheap, yes. But uh, even if he were, the largest kind of most sophisticated, if you will, law firms are based in Manhattan, right? And those people largely you know, dislike Trump intensely. That extends to lawyers, too, in Manhattan. And, um, you know, my understanding is Trump has tried to get one or two law firms. It hasn't The identities haven't been re- reported, and they've said no. Hmm. And I think the reason is that if, you know, some of these law firms, which are, you know, largely staffed by liberal lawyers in their personal lives, were to take on a, a client like Trump, there would probably be a revolt among many of the partners and many of the associates. And in a lot of these law firms, or to the extent, you know, there have been law firms like Jones Day, which was integral to Trump's 2016 campaign and administration, that have worked on behalf of Trump, they've come under very harsh scrutiny by the media. Now, he, he may find someone or find a firm. There are plenty of midsize and sort of boutique firms uh, that might be uh, just as capable as a large law firm that he may be able to find. But this is a real problem for him at the moment. You've said that people might like think, oh, well, haha, Trump can't find fancy lawyers to work with him. But you actually think it would be better if he did. Can you explain why? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right about that. We should not be rooting for him to be stuck with bad lawyers. So the reason is, um, 
it is much better for everyone if the defense is well lawyered. And I, I know that's somewhat counterintuitive, but you want this guy to get a very, very competent defense. It'll reduce the possibility that there are issues on appeal. And I think it will shore up the credibility of the outcome if this case does to go to trial and result in a conviction. So the the impetus uh, to, to have you know credible lawyers around him is very real in my estimation. I think it, it is better for everyone if he has a good team representing him. After the break, some observers are concerned about the Trump-appointed judge overseeing this case. We'll get into why. Last night, the Miami Herald reported that a magistrate had been appointed to oversee Trump's court appearance today. But the lead judge, and the one still overseeing almost all of the case, is Eileen Cannon. And for some folks, that's a pretty big deal. So Eileen Cannon is the judge who presided over Trump's lawsuit following the search at Mar-a-Lago. So she's dealt with this case before. She has dealt with this case before, correct. So when she got that lawsuit, she approved a request by Trump to have a special master essentially oversee the government's review of the documents that they had taken from Mar-a-Lago. And this was an unusual decision. Yeah, that decision came up, uh, came under intense criticism from observers. Uh, I wrote a piece highly critical of it as well. And she was eventually reversed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in a pretty sharply worded opinion. So um, she is very controversial. She That ruling was very, very friendly to Trump. We should say why it was controversial, which is it was controversial because it was like the first time a federal judge had stepped in and said, prosecutors basically have to stop their investigations <laughs> while this other process takes place, which slows down the works. And you know, she said it was specifically because this was dealing with a former president. And the 11th Circuit was like, you can't carve out exceptions to the justice process for a former president. Like, that's bad reasoning, right? That's pretty much exactly right. So that opinion was very favorable to Trump. It got tossed out. But now we're back with her, it seems, for the foreseeable future. And the question in my mind is, you know, is she going to remain dug in? And, and sort of pro-Trump, or did maybe she learn a lesson? Yeah, how did she get assigned to this case in the first place? It was random. Um, so every district has its own procedures for randomly assigning cases to judges when they're filed. And um, in this case, it was randomly assigned to her. It's a low probability event, but um, not a totally inconceivable outcome. Hmm. If she continues to oversee this case, what are the ways she could influence the process along the way. I mean, you've been in the courtroom. Like, how important is the judge to setting the terms of what becomes a trial? It's extremely important, right? So, I mean, she has wide latitude on even just the scheduling of the trial, right, which will be a major point of contention, I imagine, right? But that's virtually entirely up to her. And, and we can do, do this on, in two halves, right? The pretrial phase and the post-trial phase. So the pretrial phase, She'll get motions to dismiss. She'll get motions to exclude evidence, which she may choose to grant, right? She might be asked to exclude, for instance, the evidence that was obtained from Evan Corcoran, the attorney, on the grounds that it shouldn't be admissible at trial. Hmm. And uh, all of that is just at the pretrial phase. Now, of course, at the trial phase, again, trial judge has a lot of latitude to issue rulings and the opportunity to, within a trial, once a jury's in panel, there are ways that a judge can dismiss a case that are essentially not appealable, 
Wow. After the jury has returned the verdict, the judge can even set it aside if, if she concludes that it's not supported by the evidence. And then let's say that there is a conviction. A trial judge has a great degree of latitude on sentencing issues. So there is a very, very wide array of things that a judge in this situation can do to make things either easier or harder for the defendant. So it seems to me that if I'm Eileen Cannon, there are very good reasons, or maybe one very good reason, why I might recuse myself from this case. Mostly because even if I think I can be a fair judge, people might be questioning me the whole way especially the prosecutors, and it it may not set anyone up for success. Are there any signs that she is interested in doing that? Um, Not yet, but of course, we're very, very early on here. Um, Hasn't even been an arraignment. And, you know, the prosecutors haven't filed anything uh, in this regard. Could they just ask for a new judge in some way? Yeah, they can ask her to recuse herself. Hmm. That that motion would go before her, somewhat somewhat ironically. but, but yes, they can't ask her to step aside. I think that would be hard here, right? It would be hard here unless she wants to recuse herself. And the reason why I say that is because the standard for recusal is um, it's hard for prosecutors, right? And really all we have here is the fact that she's a Trump-appointed judge who issued rulings that were favorable to Trump. In the ordinary course, that wouldn't be enough for a judge to recuse themselves. Whether she'll come down that way, I, I really don't know. I Candidly, I doubt it, and I suspect she will be the judge presiding over this case, but we'll see. What will you be watching for that could indicate how Judge Cannon is feeling about this case moving forward and how she'll operate? The schedule that she sets, um, it can be a very, very quick thing. Um, But the one thing that a judge can do in this circumstance is start to set a schedule um, for when motions will be due, uh, for when certain things ought to be turned over by the government, and I imagine Trump's sort of strategy and his lawyer strategy is going to be try to string this out a bit and hope that maybe the election comes and maybe even Trump or some other Republican uh, is elected and he can be pardoned. And so we might get an initial indication of kind of how quickly or slowly she intends to move this along. The fact that we're talking about this judge and a recusal, the fact that she's a, a potential recusal, the fact that she's a Trump appointee, it just clarifies how politically delicate this whole situation is. And you've put it really starkly. You've said the choice is potentially Trump being in jail or Trump as president. Those are, it's such a stark choice. (laughs) Why do you put it like that? Well, because I think, you know, those are the conceivable ends of the spectrum here. And it is very, very remarkable to me. And of course, there's a lot of intermediate possibilities in between. But the reality is, like in two years from where we are right now, Trump could be president if his reelection bid is successful. And as I said, I fully expect in that circumstance, this would be swept away pretty quickly one way or another. Um, But there's also a world, right, however probable it may seem, that if things play out a certain way, he loses his reelection bid. A trial occurs. That trial uh, eventually uncovers even more damning facts than we currently know. The judge sentences him to prison time. That's a conceivable world right now. Ankush, I'm super grateful for your time and your analysis. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Ankush Kardori is an attorney and former federal prosecutor. He's also a contributing editor for New York Magazine. And that's the show. 
What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow.